Our lesson this morning is the seventh lesson in this series of studies on questions from God. Regarding Canaan, God said to Abraham, Unto thy seed will I give this land. Genesis 12, 7. While on Mount Sinai, God informed Moses that he would send his angel before Israel to bring them into the land. This angel was the pre-incarnate Christ in whom was the name of God who possessed the power to demand obedience and forgive or withhold forgiveness of Israel's sins. That's the description of this angel in Exodus 23, 21. Only the pre-incarnate Christ could be thus described. Four decades later, as Moses' life was coming to a close, he commanded Israel to empty the land of Canaan of its inhabitants, destroy every item associated with idolatry, and warn them of the perpetual adversities they would face if any of the Canaanites were permitted to remain in the land. Numbers 33, 51 to 56. Shortly before the death of Moses, God referred to the evil disposition that lurked in the heart of the second generation from Egypt. Deuteronomy 31, 21. Moses enlarged on this tragic heart inclination, declaring, For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you this day, ye have been rebellious against the Lord, and how much more after my death. Deuteronomy 31, 27. What a sad reading that is of this second generation from Egypt. It is exceedingly dangerous to nurse in one's mind any form or degree of spirit that is inconsistent with proper thinking about God in spiritual things. Allowed to continue, it will at some point emerge in overt conduct. Simeon and Levi went from anger to slaughtering the helpless Hivites. Genesis 34. Joseph's brothers from envy to selling him into slavery. Genesis 37. David from lust to adultery. 2 Samuel 12. Amnon, David's son, from lust to rape. 2 Samuel 13. Uzziah from pride to usurpation of the priesthood. 2 Chronicles 26. And Judas, tragic Judas, from the love of money to the betrayal of Christ. Now, this is what can happen when we allow some evil inclination to nurse on our hearts. Conquering the land of Canaan was to be a gradual affair. 
Moses said, And the Lord thy God will put out these nations before thee little by little. Thou mayest not consume them at once, lest the beast of the land consume thee. Deuteronomy 7, 22. Exterminating the seven pagan nations in Canaan was God's righteous war of judgment, not Israel's. God likened his role in subduing Canaan with that which he displayed in his judgment against Egypt in liberating Israel from bondage. Deuteronomy 7, 18 and 19. Only by trusting in God and following his lead as captain of the angelic host, Joshua 5, 13 to 15, would Israel be able to do their part in vanquishing the inhabitants of Canaan. This truth is reinforced in regard to the giant offspring of Anak of whom Moses said, Understand therefore this day that the Lord thy God is he which goeth over before thee. As a consuming fire, he shall destroy them, and he shall bring them down before thy face. Deuteronomy 9, 3. Those remaining in Canaan following Joshua's death would serve as objects of verification in the hand of God concerning Israel's fidelity. God would use them to prove Israel whether they would walk in his ways or not. This is the essential truth about war with the balance of Canaanites in the land that needed to be learned by the men in Israel who had not been involved in the initial battles to conquer the land. Judges 3, 1 and 2. God said, those people needed to learn how to make war. He was not talking about just how to handle a sword or a spear or a knife or a bow and arrow. He was talking about the need to trust in God because this is God's war, not Israel's. And to follow his lead because it was God who was going to destroy these nations. And Israel was just going to be a pawn in his hand. That's what they needed to learn. Tragically, they did not learn this fundamental truth about how to consummate God's righteous war of judgment against the Canaanites. Nine times... Chapter 1 of Judges points to Israel's remissness as summarized in verse 28. Quote, And it came to pass when Israel was strong that they put the Canaanites to tribute and did not utterly drive them out. They did not learn what God was trying to teach them. By such dereliction of duty, the leaders of the various tribes planted the seeds of national apostasy in the hearts of the people. Looking toward Canaan from Sinai, God had warned Israel, they shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will be a snare unto thee. Exodus 23, 33. Incessantly, in his final sermon to the nation, Moses pressed this truth upon the minds of the people. But Israel rejected God's warning, forgot Moses' sermon, and laid the foundation for her spiritual destruction and removal from the land of promise. There are always sad and tragic consequences 
for not following the will of God. God commissioned an angel to remind them of their emancipation from Egypt under the hand of love, grace, and goodness. The hand of God. His faithfulness in keeping his covenant with them and their, and then pointed to their defiant spirit regarding his commandments and raised this question. This is another one of God's questions. And what an enormous question it is. Why have ye done this? Judges 2 2. Regarding human behavior, the essence of why is motive. Its axis is the individual, it demands personal examination and a response. This question is as old as Genesis 3, 6. Just five simple words. And yet it is one of the most haunting of inquiries. It's visitors, visitors to this question are as numerous as there are accountable, spiritually reflective people on earth. It intrudes this question. Why have ye done this? It intrudes upon the mind without asking permission. It sings songs of sadness and remorse. It throbs with spiritual emotion. Those who need it the most never visit it. Surely this question gnawed on the mind of the first human pair as they trembled in fear among the trees of the garden. Why have you done this? How many times in the course of their lengthy life must Adam and Eve have visited this question and reflected upon its answer and its consequences? They had a long time, centuries, to think about this question. Why have ye done this? Noah was a preacher of righteousness, 2 Peter 2, 5. As he no doubt raised this question in its various forms to people whose hearts were only evil continually, Genesis 6, 5, his ears rang with scoffing laughter. Ceaseless mental misery. Undoubtedly, undoubtedly afflicted Abraham's mind. As he contemplated this question while Sarah, his beloved wife, languished in Pharaoh and Abimelech's harem. How many times do you think that man asked himself that question while he lay alone in his bed where Sarah should have been? Instead, she's in a pagan king's harem. No doubt he tossed and turned many a sleepless night as he reflected upon this question, 
with regard to his own sad conduct of unbelief. Not believing that God was going to take care of him and his family if he would only do what was right. To their credit, Joseph's brothers pondered this question and confessed, we are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his heart when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Genesis 42, 21. The Bible is a perpetual contrast between God's holiness and man's sin, God's goodness and man's badness, God's love for man and man's disdain for God, God's mercy seeking man and man's flesh pursuing pleasure, God's law designed for man's good and man's contempt for law that prohibits self-will. God continually asking the question, why have ye done this? And man's refusal to even consider it. This question follows man like his shadow. It is raised by parents in the home, teachers in the classroom, employers in business, coaches in sports, judges and attorneys in courtrooms, doctors in consultation with patients, counselors in counseling sessions, and husbands and wives to each other. In God's pursuit of man, it is always present. God pursuing man in love and goodness and mercy, constantly raising that question for man's reflection. Feel only stop and listen to it and take heed to it. Why? Have ye done this? It never quits. This question hovers over man like the sun lingers over the day and the moon over the night. Man may loathe it, ignore it, attempt to outrun it, or refuse to hear it, but it just keeps coming. It is persistent. It demands a hearing while refusing to be heard. The first generation from Egypt refused to consider this question as they walked in circles in the wilderness for 40 years. They went to their graves one by one in unbelief. The portrait of Hebrews 3, 7 11. When Saul presumptuously offered the sacrifices intended for Samuel, the prophet inquired of him, what hast thou done? 1 Samuel 13, 11. Refusing to deliberate upon this question and act in harmony with it, he sealed the doom of his rule over Israel. Why have ye done this? Neglecting to examine this question in regard to his polygamy, David mightily weakened his sexual being and opened the door to his adultery with Bathsheba. Diligent consideration of this question in view of his own father's failings might have saved Solomon from his own profuse polygamy and ensuing idolatry. If the wisest man on earth would have sat down early in his reign and in addition to saying wonderfully well, I'm just a child Oh God, I need help in leading this people. Would have commenced his rule 
reflecting upon this question in regard to his father's polygamy and where it led him thinking to himself, why did my father do that? I'm going to save myself from the consequences of such action by living with one wife for as long as we both shall live instead of 999 too many. He didn't learn one thing as wise as he was about his father's ills in life because he himself obviously did not seriously reflect on this question. The northern kingdom of Israel celebrated its national life by marrying the idols of Jeroboam, 1 Kings 12, 28 to 30. Eighteen kings followed Jeroboam's reign on the throne of Israel. Not one time in over 200 years did any of these kings meditate upon this question and call for a divorce from idolatry. They were so wedded and in love with their idols that God said, Ephraim is joined to idols, let him alone. Hosea 4, 17. There was no truth nor mercy nor knowledge of God in the land. Hosea 4, 1. The priests of Israel feasted on the sins of the nation like vultures on decaying flesh. Hosea 4, verse 8 having closed their minds to the national saving power of this question from the loving heart of God, Israel destroyed herself. Hosea 13, 9. Of the 19 kings and one usurper, Athaliah, the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel that ruled over Judah, only four, Jehoshaphat, Jotham, Hezekiah, and Josiah, initiated and closed their reigns in righteousness. Four out of 19. Judah embraced their idols with delight and pursued with eagerness the sins of the flesh that idol worship permitted and encouraged. Only a very small remnant remained faithful to God while the preponderance of the people are likened unto Sodom and Gomorrah, Isaiah 1.9. They committed adultery with stocks and stones, Jeremiah 3.9. They, the dejected cry of God, why have ye done this reverberates in the preaching of the prophets in countless ways. All the way through those great prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, one after another, except for Jonah. You can hear this question just thundering all the way through in various ways. Why have ye done this? There is no attitude of the heart that is more incompatible with the tender, compassionate sentiments of the gospel than the hypocritical, self-righteous spirit that can search and find the moat in his brother's eye while looking through the beam that is in his own. Such a man supplants God with himself, Luke 18, 11, as the object of his prayer. What did the Pharisee do? He prayed with himself. He wasn't praying to God. He was so full of himself. He could never work God into the picture of his life. He obviously never time one thought, once thought about this question in regard to his own life. 
He was too busy thinking about it in regard to that lonely publican over there. Oh, what a sorry man you are. Why have you done that? How could you be so sorry? Couldn't see himself. He's too busy looking at the sins of someone else. Unable to perceive his own sin, he would have stoned the adulterous woman who stood contrite in the presence of God. John 8, 1 to 8. Wholly blind to his own faults, he would have answered Paul's question, Do you think you shall escape the judgment of God? Romans 2, 3. In the affirmative. Of course I do. Oh, I'm such a fine, upstanding person. The censorious eye is destitute of mercy. Willfully oblivious to its own faults and failures, it scrutinizes the lives of others with the spirit of condemnation. It takes no prisoners as it moves across the landscape of humanity, rending into pieces all those who refuse to be made in its own image. The censorious eye is insecure. Honesty would admit a feeling of discomfort in its own skin. If it was honest. Bigness in its own eyes is secured by diminishing the size of others. It lacks discernment as a self-appointed purveyor of truth. It is unable to apprehend the difference in contending and contentious. We need to contend for the truth, but not with a contentious spirit as we do it. It ranks personalities above principles. The censorious eye is prejudiced. It grants diplomatic immunity to its friends while rending into pieces its assumed enemies. And in most instances, that's what they are, assumed enemies, not real enemies. It is unrelenting. It never quits. Its eyelids never droops in weariness. It can hammer a perceived fault for years and never experience fatigue. The censorious, judgmental, hypocritical eye is evil. It traverses the sewers of life in ceaseless search of ammunition to riddle the character of the objects of its wrath. It shoots to kill. It possesses the heart of a vulture and the spirit of a tabloid. It's bullying there's a lot of talk going on in our society about being a bully. There's no bully that excels the censorious, hypercritical spirit. It's bullying disposition and threatening demeanor darken the spirit of all who come under its influence. With regard to its own conduct, it never and cannot comprehend the question, why have ye done this? That question is always raised in regard to someone else, never themselves. This question is 
inexpressibly monumental in its scope. In regard to the fullness of its implications, it is unfathomable. Jesus entered the womb of Mary with this question hidden in his heart. Not in regard to himself, of course, but in regard to every accountable being from Adam and Eve till time's end. He entered the womb of Mary with this question hidden in its heart. He didn't know it yet in this human form in which he now is and will be for over three decades. But it's hidden there. The first revealed statement of his own incomplete comprehension of it can be seen in his own question to his anxious parents at age 12. Knew ye not that I must be about my father's business. Luke 2, 49, 12 years old. He's a little boy. He has not yet grown in his mental capacity, in his mental comprehension to be able to understand in its full sense the reason for his coming into the world and what his father's business really entailed. Why have ye done this? Points to the mission of Christ to seek and to save that which was lost. Luke 19.10. It is at the forefront of everything Jesus did and taught. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Matthew 27.46 highlights the price that Christ paid to solve the problem raised in this question. The first consummated gospel sermon preached on Pentecost of Acts 2 reaches back to the it is finished of John 19.30 followed by the resurrection of Christ that constitutes the remedy to the problem set forth in this question. No one will ever raise the question, what shall we do? Acts 2.37 That some 3,000 ask on Pentecost, no one will ever raise that question without pondering their own life in light of the question, why have ye, why have I done this? If you've not obeyed the gospel upon pondering that question and knowing what you need to do by faith, depending of your Sins, confessing Christ, being baptized into Christ, or coming back home in penitence, confession, and prayer. We encourage you to do that while we stand and say. Oh, 
heed my calling, I will abide with Thee. All through the dark hours weary, knocking again is He. Jesus, art Thou not weary, waiting so long for me? Sweetly the tones are falling, open the door for me. If Thou wilt heed my calling, I will abide with thee. Closing song will be number 559. Thankful, you're, thankful for your attendance this morning, especially any visitors we might have. I encourage you to stick around so we can get to know you a little bit better. Tonight we'll have our training class at 5 o'clock, memory class at 5.30. And then worship at 6 o'clock. 559. When all of God's singers get home, we'll sing all three verses. What a song of delight in that city so bright will be wafted neath heaven's fair dome. How the ransom will raise happy songs in his praise when all of God's singers get home. When all of God's singers get home, where never a sorrow will come, there'll be no place like home when all of God's singers get home. As we sing here on earth, songs of sadness or mirth, tis a foretaste of rapture to come. But our joy can't compare with the glory up there when all of God's singers get home. When all of God's singers get home, whenever a sorrow will come, there'll be no place like home when all of God's singers get home. Having overcome sin, hallelujah, amen, will be heard in that land or the foam. Every heart will be light and each face will be bright when all of God's singers get home. When all of God's singers get home, whenever a sorrow will come. There'll be no place like home when all of God's singers get home.